All right. Week three, attributes of God, God's spirituality. So this week we're going to discuss the spirituality of God and what it means that God is spirit. Now, immediately, whenever we hear this, we're drawn to the text of scripture, John chapter four, where Jesus was speaking to the uh, the woman at the well and, you know, talking to him. And he told he asked her to uh, get him some water and, you know, and told her if she would have asked, he would have given her uh, the water that springs up to life, giving her eternal life, told her about her living situation with uh, with her boyfriend at the time that she had had five husbands and then it got switched to the topic of worship and um that's when the uh the woman at the well she was concerned with the location of worship but jesus put all that to bed and said that you know the the location does not matter now he's speaking of um and then he goes into speaking of uh, who God is and said that God is spirit and talked about then how we must worship him, told her how God must be worshiped. But then that translates down to us how we must worship God as well. And he said that God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, so. The requirement for worshiping God was and is worship in both spirit and truth. And this is because of who God is. He is spirit. John 4:24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, next week, we'll talk about how God being spirit affects our worship. But tonight we'll discuss uh, what is meant by God is spirit. So let's pray and then we'll get into um, the teaching for tonight. So Father, we thank you for this time that we have together once again, God, to uh, talk about you and who you are and your character and your uh, communicable attributes to us, God, how you uh, make yourself known to us, God. And we know that we are only scratching the surface of who you are. So we just pray, God, that as we go through uh, and, and talk about how you are spirit tonight, God, that it would resonate with us, that it would stick with us, God, and we would be changed by that in our view of you and who you are. May it, may it permeate our lives, God. And as we read through scripture tonight, we pray, God, that you would speak to us through your word. We know that that is the only way that we can hear from you is through your word. So be with us as we go through the teaching tonight. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So God is spirit. So this means that God is not corporeal or corporeal. So corporeal, C-O-R-P-O-R-E-A-L. So that means simply this, that so corporeal or corporeous means having a body consisting of a material body or material. But God is none of these. He has no tangible substance. So God does not have a body like you and I. See, if he did have a body, one thing, if God had a body, this conversation that we are sitting here right now having would not be because God is everywhere at all times. And if he was a physical being, he would take up all space everywhere, you know. So that is why it's important to know that God is uh, his spirit. But if he did have a body, he couldn't charge man with the sin of exchanging the glory of incorruptible God for that of 
incorruptible man. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 1 and see what's said there. Romans chapter 1, verse 23 is the focus here. But I'll start at verse 22, and it says simply this. It says, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four footed animals and crawling creatures. See, if and and that's that's a charge against man for exchanging the glory of incorruptible God for an image that is made by hands through things that God has created. They're making an image of him. So they're exchanging his glory, the glory of the creator for something that is created, diminishing his glory. But if God did have a body That charge couldn't be brought against man that you are trying to make an image like me and worship that, you know, because they would be man could argue back saying that, hey, we're just trying to make that image that looks like you to remind us whenever we are worshiping of what it is that you look like. You know, that could be one argument, but God does not have a a body like men. If God had a body, he would be compound, meaning that he is formed by a union or elements or parts. And the problem with that is this, that being as though he is formed by parts or he would be formed by parts, that would mean that he could be separated. So that in itself creates another issue. So with God being able to be separated, there would be the issue that needed to be dealt with. Which parts are finite? Which parts are infinite of this God that can be uh, separated? The parts that are finite would not be worthy of God. The parts that are infinite, if separate, would each individually be God when speaking of God on a whole in his essence and his attributes with which cannot be separated if he were compound and could be separated into parts each individual part is going to have to be equally God so that's another uh, issue that would be faced if God had a body so The parts that are finite would not be worthy of God. The parts that are infinite, if separate, would each individually be God, meaning essentially that there would be many gods. And we know that scripture does not teach that, that there are many gods. Uh, The scripture says, uh, it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he is one, one God, not five, not three, but one God. Okay. so thinking of this, it's there's a lot. There's a lot here when you're speaking about the spirituality of God and the attributes of God alone. You know, it's a lot for us to kind of wrap our minds around, but. As I've said before, and I'll likely say many times over as we're going through the attributes, behold the mystery. <laughs> you know, <laughs> behold the mystery. The Lord our God is one, eternally existent in three persons Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity, right? The Son is not the Father, the Holy Spirit is is not the son. The father is not the Holy Spirit. All three distinct persons of the Godhead are one. So what does this show us about the Trinity 
uh, about God as as being spirit. In terms of the Trinity, it shows us this, that God is united. He's united. So although there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God is one. He cannot be divided in his being, nor can he be divided in terms of his disposition toward creation. God in his sovereign will and eternal purpose cannot be divided. The Lord is always in sync in will and purpose. And this is evident in in salvation. We see it clearly in salvation that there is no division between Father, Son, Holy Spirit. See, believers were chosen in eternity past before the foundation of the world. Let's take a look at first Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one, verses one and two, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the father, by the sanctifying work of the spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So we see there is no division in salvation between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We baptize as commanded in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28:19 says. So there is no protest in any part of the Godhead in terms of saving the elect. Now imagine what that would look like if that were the case. If the father says, hey, I want to save Andy. The son says, yeah, that's great. The Holy Spirit says, ah. <laughs> I don't know about that. That's a that's a dead heart. That that heart is too stony. I don't feel like going to break that heart of stone. <laughs> but can you imagine if there was no agreement there? But see, that just helps us understand that the mystery that although they are three distinct persons, they are one, one in essence, one in will, one in purpose. There is no division that could not happen if God were not spirit. He could not be one and three. Behold the mystery. Behold the mystery. You know, we can try to explain it as as much as we can, but we can only scratch the surface. Our minds can only go so far when we're speaking about the Trinity. But speaking of God as spirit, it is important to know in terms of the Trinity that he is spirit. And we have to come to grips with that. So God as spirit cannot be divided. So we talked about this in our intro session to the study. Right. So really quick, what does that mean that he can't be divided? So speaking in terms of his attributes, if you remember, we said all of God's attributes make up the whole of who he is and the whole of his attributes. So, for instance, you can't separate his love from his wrath or his wisdom from his omnipotence. You know, you can't separate anything. It's all, all 
together all on a whole. Not a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of omnipotence, a little bit of omniscience, a little bit. You, you know, no, it's all together, all whole. All of God's attributes are all of God and who he is in his spirit being. So just briefly back to the topic of the Trinity, the triune God is again united, but also indivisible. So what does this mean? The Trinity fully possesses each and every aspect of the communicable characteristics attributed to God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are each all wise, are each all knowing, are each all powerful, each are all holy, each possesses divine wrath in full. So it's not as if holiness and wrath is is delegated to the father and love and omnipotence is delegated to the son and omniscience and wisdom is delegated to the Holy Spirit. No, all of God's attributes are all of God. Each of the three distinct persons possesses all attributes fully. Okay. Steve Lawson put it like this. He says the three persons share the same being. No attribute is restricted to one member of the Godhead, but not found in the other two persons. Each attribute is equally complete in each divine person. Jesus is not more loving than the father. The spirit is not wiser than Jesus the Father, Son, and Spirit are equally holy, equally omnipotent, equally loving, and co-equal in each of their divine attributes. The spirituality of God, then, is important to understand in regard to the Trinity, as we have seen. But let's take a look at a couple of uh, more aspects of this attribute of God being spirit. So there are many ways to break it down and we're not going to get to uh, get to all of them tonight. And even next week, whenever we continue on, we're not going to get to all of them. We're just going to touch on a few. But any questions before we before we move on? All right. <clears throat> so. Invisibility. This is an aspect of the attribute of God being spirit, invisibility. God cannot be seen by human eyes. So let's take a look at Exodus chapter 33, verses 17 through 23. And just to get a little more context here, Exodus chapter 33, verses 17 through 23. All right. Starting in verse 17, it says, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, 
but my face shall not be seen. So even there, you notice, in addition to stating that uh, no man can see God and live, you see other references um, that would point to, uh, you know, would, would point to God having parts as a man does. You know, you see his face, his back, his hand. You know, these speak of things that we as human beings have, but God does not have a body so, because he is what? He's incorporeal. But what does all of this mean? It, it's a lot to grasp, isn't it? You know, we say that God doesn't have a body. Human eyes can't see him. But in the same, you know, in the same context, we're talking about his back, his face, his his hand. But we'll discuss that more in, in a few. But all of that to say that God is invisible. He cannot be seen by human eyes. Why? Because he is spirit, right? God is spirit. God is invisible. He has no size, no shape or color that our eyes can see. Jesus says this in John chapter one, verse 18. He says, no one has seen God at any time. Then in John chapter six, verse 46, he says, not that anyone has seen the father. So God is invisible. Now, whenever God manifests himself, there is no direct physical sight of his being. Even when God revealed himself to Moses, it was through a blinding light that could not be viewed directly without resulting in death. So how does God make himself known? Let's go back to Romans chapter one and read verses 18 through 20. All right. Starting in verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So what does that tell us about how God shows himself? Verse 20 tells us, right? Verse 20 tells us how he shows himself through what has been made. So the attributes are made known through what God has made. Any questions? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Confused. Okay. Okay, because the Trinity, you see, they all share the attributes equally, like it's not delegated. Mm-hmm. So God can't be seen, but then Jesus was seen. We'll talk about that. Okay, can I ask another question? I promise you we will. <laughs> Are we not able to see him because we're not physically able or we're not allowed because in that um exodus it sounded like no man should see him and live like i mean we would have to die if we saw him or like we physically can't you understand we like, would die <laughs> That's, we would die if we saw him you know we are the bodies that we live in we are in sinful flesh right god is holy holy okay the only way that we are made acceptable to god at all is through his son jesus christ so we were chosen before the foundation of the world we were 
called into salvation, right? Into that right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, right? And for those whom he called, he justified. So to be justified means that he treats us or looks at us as if we never sinned. Okay, but not only are we justified, we're also glorified. So that means as if we are already it's settled, that account has been settled. If we are a child of God, we have also been glorified. So that seat in heaven is reserved for us. Now, in order for us to be justified, there had a price had to be paid that severe price of God's wrath being poured out on Jesus Christ. So we're justified, but, you know, we don't want to just take that justification and say, oh, you know, he's treating me or looking at me as if I never sinned, as if there was not some transaction that had to take place. There was a transaction that had to take place at the cross. And that's where that perfect, spotless, sinless lamb, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for us. So God took him who knew no sin. Jesus Christ, he took him who knew no sin and made him. Jesus became sin on our behalf. So then that we might become the righteousness of uh, of God. So he treated Christ as if he committed every single sin that we would past, present, future. Now, justified, glorified. So now, though we have been justified and though we do have that seat reserved for us in heaven, we're going through that process now of sanctification. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're continually being saved right meaning that we are in christ that relationship is right with god now through christ but we are still in this flesh we're in this mortal flesh and we have to continually be cleansed from sin. That's what it means that we're still being saved. We're learning more about God and recognizing how sinful that we are. We're repenting of our sin, being cleansed daily. That's why repentance is a lifestyle. You know, we repent of our sin daily, but we are still in this flesh. We don't have bodies right now that could stand in the presence of holy God and not be taken out like that. That's why whenever Christ returns, we have to be given that glorified body. And whenever we see him, whenever he does call us into eternity we'll see him like he is because then we'll be face to face with him but something has to happen this mortal flesh this sinful flesh that we are in cannot stand before holy god not for a millisecond so we have to be made new just like our souls are our um made new whenever we come to Christ in faith. You know, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. So just as we had to be washed, clean, made new in order for us to be able to stand in front of an infinitely holy, perfect God, all sin has to be done away with, including the sinful flesh that we now have, that we're, you know, of, of our, our mortal bodies. So we have to be made new to be able to stand in front of 
God forever. Look at it the other way. Those who don't know Christ, who are not going to be with him for eternity, they are going to have to suffer the wrath of God in hell for eternity. Do you think that this body that we have right now could withstand the wrath of God for eternity? No. No. So there has to be another change that that takes place for us to be able to stand before a, a, a holy God and be able to commune with him and 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 have that conversation with him talk with him glorify him forever in his presence there's no way that we can do it in this uh you know in this mortal flesh that we're in right now so hopefully that helped yes thank you did it really yeah. okay yes. all right all right <clears throat> all right any other questions that was a good one all right so God is spirit. He is invisible, but he also has made himself known to us through his son, Jesus Christ. So John chapter one, verse 14. It says this, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth. Um, John chapter 14, verses one, um, verses one through nine. Let's take a look at that. All right. Starting in verse one says this it says do not let your heart be troubled believe in god believe also in me in my father's house are many dwelling places if it were not so i would have told you for i go to prepare a place for you if i go and prepare a place for you i will come again and receive you to myself that where i am there you may be also and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. Verse seven, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him. And have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? So, um, Right there again, that's another example of how God has revealed himself through Jesus Christ, the son. He says, he who has seen me has seen the father. Um, let's take a look at one more portion of scripture. Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 20. Starting in verse 15, it says this, it says he is the invisible. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Speaking of Jesus, for by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So we see Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus Christ. So if God were ever to be in any human form, the way that we see it is through Jesus Christ. And this is through God's grace that he has shown us himself through his son. All right. Any questions? Clear as mud? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So what about all of the mention in scripture about God's hand? His arm, the eye of God, his foot, his face, his back, like we have read. What about all of this? So what is this? This is anthropomorphic language. It's a figure of speech that metaphorically describes God as if he were a man. Spell that. Please. It's Mm A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-M. O R P. Wait, M O R P. Mhm. H I C. Yep. So it's anthropomorphic uh, language or anthropomorphism. It's a, a figure of speech that metaphorically describes God as if he were a man. So this is a, a, liter, a literary device that it's not inherently. Uh, theological because it can be used for uh, for anything. So Psalm 19 verse five, it describes the son as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course is what David said. So that's an example of an anthropomorphism. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse four says of God, the rock, his work is perfect but we don't think of god as a literal rock do we we don't go outside and see a rock and say hey that's god no (laughs) that's a that's an anthropomorphism so that is a way uh for god to that that's a way to convey god in an easy to understand way as god makes himself known with human-like features so God's hand and arm functions as metaphors for his power as creator and savior. Uh, Psalm 139 verse 10 and Isaiah 52 uh, verse 10. God's God's finger can represent the work of his spirit. Uh, Matthew 12, 28 and Luke chapter uh, 11 verse 20. Take a look at that real quick. So Matthew 12, 28. It says this, it says, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now. Same context, Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 20. chapter 11 verse 20 it says but if i cast out demons by the finger of god then the kingdom of god has come upon you so 
same thing there. One said spirit, the other said finger, same thing. You know, different accounts. You have Matthew's account, you have Luke's account here. They're both telling the same story. But that's just an example that God's finger can represent the work of his spirit. The eyes of the Lord means that God is all seeing. His arm means that he is almighty. His mind means that he is all wise. His mouth means that he speaks with authority. He is a spirit being without any body parts. And this is just a way to communicate important truths about God. But we need not attribute to him all that the anthropomorphism implies as this would be a dishonor to who God truly is. So it's a way to understand him, but it can't be a way to say, oh, that's exactly who God is, you know, because that would diminish who he who God truly is. It's just a way for us to understand who he is. Uh, Stephen Charnock said said this, he said, just as the sun's radiation could destroy us, but when filtered through our atmosphere, it illuminates and warms us. So God condescends to reveal himself in human terms so that his glory will not harm us, but rather heal and help us. Uh, Stephen Charnock, C-H-A-R-N-O-C-K. You're welcome. <laughs> so God is spirit. He does not have flesh and bones. He is not like men, nor is he like an animal. And speaking of God's spiritual essence, John Calvin said this. He said his spiritual nature forbids our imagining anything earthly of carnal uh, or, or fleshly of him. His spiritual nature forbids our imagining anything earthly or carnal of him. So whatever our imaginations of God may be, let's just make sure that we rid ourselves of anything that is not scriptural when it comes to God. And remember that God is spirit. Any questions, comments? Sure. (laughs) Now, there are arguments that say God must have a body because he appeared to people as a man or a glorified man. So, for instance, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 18, verses one and two, and then Genesis chapter 32, uh, verses 24 through 32. Genesis 18 verses 1 and 2, it says, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. So, this is uh, speaking of of Abraham it says when the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Three men, he saw three men, right? Um, Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 32. Starting in verse 24, it says, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. <clears throat> so we can stop right there for that one. Let's um, let's go to Exodus chapter 24, verses nine. Uh, verses 9 and 10. So these first two examples are of God appearing as a man. Exodus 24 verses 9 through 10 is God appearing as a glorified man. All right, starting in verse nine, it says, then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel and under his feet, there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. So under his feet. Um, so this is a uh, appearance of. As a glorified man, this is just one example here. So some people will use verses like this to say that God must have or must have had a body. For example, Mormons, they teach that God the father was a deified man who had flesh and bones tangible as man's saying that he was once like us. They say that he is the father of us all, but that he dwelt on earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did. This is what they say. According to man, uh, uh, to Mormons, God made man in his own image in a literal and physical way. When speaking of being made in God's image, and this is just this is for us. So that's what the Mormons say. But speaking of being made in God's image, it, it's a reference to the mental and moral likeness of man's soul to God's, not the physical body. So Ephesians chapter four, uh, verse 24 and Colossians chapter three, verse 10. Let's take a look at those real quick and see what it says. Just so we can get a better grasp on that. <clears throat> so Ephesians chapter four, verse 24. It says, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Then Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. We'll actually start, I'll actually start at verse 9. It says, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So we're speaking of with with being made in the image of God, his moral likeness of uh, it's it's the the mental and moral likeness of God's soul to man's soul, not so much the physical body that we are talking about. Because remember, God does not have a body like men. That's one of the catech uh, catechism questions that I ask to the kids: Who is God? God is a spirit. And he does not have a body like men. OK. See, Mormons will say, however, this is the statement that they make. Just trying to back up their claim that God, the father was on this earth in physical flesh with bones tangible as you and I are. They make this statement. They says they say as man now is 
God once was. As, uh, as God now is, man may be. But see, this contradicts the clear teaching and what Jesus said that God is spirit. Okay, and that's where we start with what the Bible says. God is spirit. They even the Mormons even took that uh, that verse there. John four twenty four, maybe four twenty six. They took that and made it into their own, put their own words in there and said it's um, something. Don't quote me on this, but unto him shall be given a spirit like, you know, so they they just took that God is spirit and just completely obliterated it, trying to get their point across, you know, that God is was physical man that walked on this earth. So that many problems there, <laughs> you know what I mean? So there are many, many problems there, but we'll stick with what the word of God says that God is spirit. So the visible appearances to men, even though people try to take this and use it to their advantage, like the Mormons do, God's visible appearances to men are what are known as theophanies. And was that? Yep. P-H-A-N-Y. Thank you. You're welcome. So a theophany is not a view of God's essence, but rather it's a view of his special presence. And he appeared in a variety of forms, consuming fire, a cloud, all of this to show his people that he did not have a physical constitution like that of the created world. Deuteronomy chapter four, verses 11 through 19. Starting in verse 11, Deuteronomy chapter four, verses 11 through 19. It says, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly. And make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or, or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So you see, these are ways that God appeared. And these are these are. Theophanies that just shows that God does not have a physical constitution. Man like Theophanies anticipated the incarnation of God the Son as a human being, not in divine flesh, but as a divine person, having having taken human flesh into union with himself. That's a quote from uh, Joel Beakey. 
So, still with me? Mm. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> God is spirit. To say that God is spirit is to communicate that he is life. The word that is translated as spirit is pneuma, which can mean wind or breath, indicating life. Um, John chapter 3 verses 7 and 8 and then John chapter 6 uh, verse 63 So John 3, verses 7 and 8, it says, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 63. It says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So, again, this just shows that spirit translated, it means wind or breath, but it indicates life. Another quote, it says, wind or breath is the mark of life. And thus stand for life in place of enlivening power. Thus, it is the case that God's spirituality also means his living activity. So before Jesus, back to John chapter four, uh, before Jesus said that God is spirit. He had just spoken to the woman at the well about living water. So John chapter four, verse 10, it says, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Uh, Verse 14, it says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus was drawing upon the prophetic description of God as the fountain of living waters. Uh, Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it, but write it down for uh, in your notes so you have it. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, it says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And Psalm 36, verse 9, also describes God as the fountain of life. We read that last week. Uh, Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. It says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God. So one one final quote before we finish up it says this. It says the spirit is living and dynamic by definition. Motionless wind or breath is a contradiction in terms. God's spirit and life are not merely something he has. He is spirit and life. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So next week, we'll talk just a little bit more about what it means that God is spirit, but then how that translates into our worship and what our worship should be like 
based on the fact that God is spirit. Any questions? Sure. (laughs) All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for this time that we have had together. God, we are only scratching the surface of who you are, God. And I pray, Lord, that as we depart from here tonight, as we get up from this table here tonight, that we would think on the things of your word and think on your attributes and who you are, God, and help us to run to the scriptures to seek you out to search you out for things that we may not understand god we cannot understand you fully god uh we are in the sinful flesh god but you through your son jesus christ have graciously sent him god to die on the cross for our sin and we can look at him to see to get a glimpse of who you truly are God, and we just ask that we continue to keep our focus on Christ and it's in his name we pray. Amen.